Hey, it's Caroline. Hey, y'all. What to do? It's your girl, Lucy. This is Aria, and you're listening to Transatlantic Conversations, the podcast. We're current events through the lens of gender nonconformity, aiming to elevate the trans community and give a voice to marginalized groups. We're going to sit weekly discussing the most pressing matters, meeting incredible people and trying to advance the visibility, acceptance and understanding for the LGBTQIA community. This is Athena Pramakis, contributing researcher for Transatlantic Conversations, where we talk about the transgender experience in America. In this, our 30th episode, we put together some earlier conversations about privilege, police, prostitution, pros, and so much more. Today we'll hear from Aria Lackey, Carolyn Penny, Cynthia Grace, and Lucy Balzano. We appreciate you listening in. We've put in a lot of works over these episodes to bring you conversations with over 20 guests. And Carolyn and I have shared with each other how much it means to be able to discuss all of these things, to bring our voices to be heard in our community and beyond. So we thank you very much for the time you spend with us today. So many things can be said about the founding of the country. Um, one thing is that the, the founding fathers were not just these um, heroic figures, or were not these heroic figures that stood for freedom and liberty for all. M- more than anything, they were aristocrats that wanted to maintain their positions of power while also not being subjected to the, the laws of Great Britain. Another thing is, is that many of the founding fathers um, felt that the constitution would need to be updated to go along with the times. Like I think if you brought um, someone like Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin to today, they would be absolutely shocked that a document that was dictating the lives of people who were living with horse-drawn carriages and muskets was still dictating the laws of modern days would be completely dumbfounded. Oh, they'd, they'd definitely be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have a Catholic on the Supreme Court? Mm-hmm. What? What? Black people? You, think... you freed yeah. the slaves? There's a lot of misconceptions about why shit was founded. They like to say things like, oh, it was about no taxation without representation. But, like, let's be honest. None of the taxes were enforced outside of the the tea fucking tax. That was, like, it. None of the other shit was really being enforced. And the place that founded those colonies were like, hey, we got to recoup our money on these these people like we haven't really done shit with them so let's do something finally to get something out of it and that's what led to a lot of silly stuff because for all the all fucking england knew the the people in the colonies were happy as a pig and shit like we literally sent representatives over to say all things were great fine we love it here let us be we'll do our thing you'll make lots of money and then out of the blue they're like we're going to and the real reason for that was because the founding fathers wanted to make a buck. They just were greedy assholes. Yeah, the Constitution um, well, had deliberately had elements to it to maintain the status quo power structures that were already being set up in place. Like the founding fathers wanted to make sure they maintain their positions of prominence. And so they intentionally kept out certain democratic elements from the system and made sure that there were um, there there were things in, in the system to keep certain people in power. Yep, because some of them were destitute after the war and were mm-hmm. still in power, even though by their own legal standards, they should not be in 
the positions that they were afterwards. Yeah, the um, back during the founding of the country, less than 10% of the population of the 13 colonies could even vote. It was only whites, landowning men. Wow. Like at least 90% of the country was excluded from the, the democratic process because the founding fathers deliberately wanted to keep the democratic elements as as mitigated as possible. There were several of the founding fathers who um, even said as much, like they wanted to avoid, quote unquote, the tyranny of the majority. They did not trust the people of the country to actually make decisions for the country. I think one of the biggest problems, um, certain groups of people, I don't want to call out any certain groups of people, but not trans women who have never had the trans experience have is that they lack perspective because I know that, you know, prior to transition, I, I already had a lot of those like progressive values to me um, from a long time ago, but I didn't really have any kind of experience with not really having a lot of privilege. So, you know, I had, I had the, the knowledge, I had the arguments, but until you experience it, it's a completely different ball game. So, and, you know, You'll, you'll get that lack of perspective from certain people talking about things like, you know, walking alone by yourself or going places at night or how men treat women. And you can tell that they just don't know any better because they haven't experienced it. Um, I think that a lot of things are apparent once you start to experience it. For instance, at my work, before coming out and transitioning, I remember a friend of mine, a very good friend who is in a part of the community their own way, so I won't be using their real name. We'll use the the letter E. It's that's somewhere in their name, so they're not identifiable. Um, we'll say E was talking to me about certain issues because they knew what I was planning to do. I just hadn't come out yet. And they were talking about how walking to their car alone is terrifying and scary. And a cis male came up, I will not say their name because I know they don't listen to shows like this, but they're a coworker who likes to debate. They are of the libertarian mindset. We'll call them C. C came up and was like, oh, well, I think that you're overreacting because X, Y, Z reason. And men aren't inherently scary. And then I had to clarify, cis men is who he's referring to. Cis men aren't inherently scary. And he was like, really? Because my 110 pound self could definitely take on a 200 pound person because I put keys in my hands or something? That makes no sense. And they mm -hmm. literally got into an argument and a debate. And he looks towards me to try to back him up on this, but it's like, no, that person was right. Like, E is 100% in the right on this. It is a terrifying thing. And I understand that C feels that not all men are bad, but it's like the, it's, it's essentially every experience that E has had is at a disadvantage and somebody trying to be predatory and exploitative. So I understand E's, reason, uh, E's reasoning. E is essentially saying like, I get that not all cis men are terrible and scary. However, I'm not going to take the chance and risk that. And C is upset because E is describing their reality because C is coming from a position of privilege and never had to worry about that. Well, I've had a, I've I've experienced that recently this week where 
I've come again off the cusp of privilege where I've realized that like everything that I ever have been told in my life has been basically horseshit and that nobody knows anything and golly uh, I wish that I, I, I regret and, and, and I don't regret, like I, I'm mad. It's just like, I had this conversation with somebody, uh, how they told me not to regret anything. And it was like, no, regret is, is a good way to like reflect and, and, and to say, you don't have any regret is to like live without that. And, and to think that you, you didn't make a mistake and that you can't learn and, and things like that. So it's really taken from Brene Brown, but, um, I, so many people like they i don't i can't get advice from people now because like it's it's just it's worthless to me because it is so rooted in in privilege it's like i've never seen so much privilege in my life now that i'm i'm coming off of it like everything is it's like even going to the grocery store <laughs> like it's everywhere it's everywhere i can see it everywhere it essentially falls from the sky like rain and you have people who are like I've got this pretty umbrella and I'm shielded from any repercussions from my privilege, whereas everyone else is just getting pissed on. Right. So there was a study done. Um, it was carried out, carried out by the <clears throat> Global Network of Sex Work Projects, the NSWP, and it goes through the different aspects of sex work and why um, decriminalization and legalization are very important. And I wanted to cover some stuff on um, policing of sex work specifically. So I'm gonna hop down to that. Surveillance, policing, and a culture of impunity increase vulnerability to violence. So I'm gonna read a few highlights from that, that section. Criminalization turns sex workers into a target population and promotes stigma and discrimination which impacts not only interactions with law enforcement, but also clients, the larger community, and service providers. Law enforcement can use the threat of arrest to extort money, sex, and information from sex workers. According to one study, 30% of female sex workers have experienced police harassment or workplace violence in formal indoor establishments, compared with 70% in informal, indoor, or outdoor venues. Criminalization creates a culture of impunity, which fosters a variety of human rights abuses, most notably physical and sexual violence. In an individual, if an individual fears arrest, reporting violence, often to the same institution that perpetuated violence against them, is unlikely. In a culture where a specific population is broadly known to be less likely to report or receive a response upon reporting violence, that population becomes a target for abuse. Further, um, further perpetuators of violence against sex workers use the threat of punitive measures to control and exploit sex workers. Regional studies conducted by and with sex worker networks in the Asia Pacific, Caribbean, and Latin America, Africa, and Eastern Europe and Central Asia regions document that police are among the main perpetrators of sexual, physical, and emotional violence against sex workers. Policing of the sex industry also leads sex workers to adapt their own behaviors to avoid arrest, often forcing them into situations which have higher risks of violence. Two of the most notable behavioral changes are moving into more isolated locations and shortening negotiation times with clients. 
in order to avoid prosecution, sex workers tend to practice their trades in places that are too clandestine, where prevention services are not sufficiently available. And in such circumstances, even clients may refuse to pay the agreed sum for fear of their for fear of the arrests. So, and this article also goes on to talk about how it's pretty commonplace in a lot in many parts of the world for police to confiscate things like condoms as contraband, which increases yep. the risk for STD infections. So, well, and you don't want to you don't want to normally keep those on you in a location, um, mainly because that will be used as evidence against you. So, like, there was a study that was done by uh, Baylor University by Scott Cunningham and Manisha Shah, and they talk about how not only, like, does legalizing sex work lower the number of STDs because now you can keep stuff like that on you. It's no longer considered contraband that can be used against you. But at the same time, it lowers the levels of sexual assault. They found that it was like 31%, I think it was. Uh, let me pull that up briefly. Yeah, 31%. 31% of people who have experienced a sexual assault wouldn't have experienced it. And the number of STDs went down by 39%. Right. Um, yeah, the, um, the, the bit about um, this giving police and other, you know, police enforcement impunity, basically, um, about how sex workers aren't likely to go to the same institution that perpetuated against violent, violence against them in the first place really struck me. Because, again, go back to what we were talking about, about unionization, it's a matter of incentives. Like sex workers have nowhere to go. They can't go to the police. So police are basically given free reign to do whatever it is they want to do because where else are you going to go? You literally have nowhere to go. And normally you can take justice, justice into your own hand if it's somebody who's not connected like that, but you beat up a cop, that's a felony. So they're literally just untouchables. And like in the industry, which we would discuss amongst ourselves in like the stairways and some of these places or uh, where you could smoke, like you go out, you'd smoke and you could get a good feel of who was there to support like their drug habits because they'd be actively using them. And then you'd have people who are just like, I just, you know, I like sex. I can make money off of it. Why not? Some who are just there to pay the bills. And we would talk amongst ourselves about some of the ways that you could find, um, who exactly is a cop? Now, granted, there were some who were working for pimps trying to pull you into, you know, the pimps like little game. But we would, we, you could normally get a good feel, and then we would trade shop. We would talk shop basically. And sure enough, I personally don't know if some of the people who I turned back were police officers, but they sure did act like it. And it's not like TV where you can be like, "Are you a cop?" And then they are like, "Oh no, I can't tell this person that I'm not a cop." Real life, they don't have to do that. They would literally just be like, they'd come in and they would, they would just be this, they would not do the norm, like yeah. immediately come in. Yeah. Did you, did you ever watch Breaking Bad? I watched parts of it. There was, um, there was a scene in an episode of Breaking Bad where one of the, the dealers was talking to an undercover cop and he didn't know. And he was like, oh yeah, yeah just ask me if I'm a cop because if, if, I, if you ask me, then I have to be honest. And he was like, oh, oh, are you a cop? It's like, I swear on my life, I'm not a cop. 
and <laughs> scene, scene proceeds. Get on the ground. You're under arrest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because they don't have to tell you the truth. Yeah. Hashtag not legal advice, but and I wanted to highlight this other part. <clears throat> um, sex workers are also disproportionately affected by HIV. In 2014, um, UN AIDS estimated that HIV prevalence among sex workers was 12 times greater than that of the general population, even in countries with high prevalence among the general population. Many international health organizations have come to the consensus on the importance of decriminalization to the health and well-being of sex workers with a focus on reducing their vulnerability to HIV. The World Health Organization guidelines state, all countries should work toward decriminalization of sex work and elimination of the unjust application of non-criminal laws and regulations against sex workers. The Global Commission on HIV and the Law, drawing from over 1,000 oral and written submissions globally, came to, this, came to a similar conclusion noting that circumstances in collusion with social stigma make sex workers' lives more unstable, less safe, and far riskier in terms of HIV. So yeah, kind of what we were talking a little bit about earlier is that um, the fact that things like condoms are often taken as contraband or evidence makes, it, makes the pre prevalence of STDs in the community more likely. Look at the gun control debate that's going on right now, because for so long, it's been just people pissed, sitting at home, being pissed, or, oh, the same thing's going to happen every single time. There's going to be a debate. It's going to go back to business as usual. Well, now there's enough people who are pissed who are like, hey, we need to advocate for some change on this shit. And you've got it to the point where even some Republicans are starting to be like, you know, maybe not having uh, good gun control laws is a bad idea. Like, I'm all for, for guns. I love guns. I, I plan to make sure that in the future when I rule the world, all trans women are given guns by the government. Just plain and simple. However, even I, the gun advocate, recognize that the gun laws in America, in the United States, I shouldn't say America, in the United States are fucky as shit. And only somebody who is completely removed from reality would think that we have good gun laws currently. All right. Well, I wrote a little bit of something uh, for... Uh today's uh, episode and i'd like to read it if you don't mind please yeah of course all right in this post i'm going to be talking about jk rowling her new book the pseudo name she chooses to write the book under and finally i am going to point out the dangers of print of these printings and the beliefs that can be used on such large audiences before i begin i will make i want to make something very clear Miss Rowling is entitled to her opinion no matter how wrong it is. With that said, I have the right to rip her opinion a new one and point out what I believe the dangers are of her book. So let's talk about her new book. It is called The Black Ink Heart. In this book, it talks about how the protagonist, who is transphobic, and the online wrath they receive where the protagonist is the victim of cancel culture. This book, in my opinion, is nothing more than her own self-reflection of her own anti-transphobic fears and beliefs, putting herself as the victim in the story. Many critics and people believe that this story mirrors 
the same scenario that she is currently facing right now in the world when it comes to the issue of transphobia. In other words, in my opinion, it is nothing more than 1,024 pages of pure hate and trash writing. Now let's look at the pseudonym she used to write this book under. She used the pseudonym Robert Gilbraith. Who is Robert Gilbraith? He was an American psychologist who was famous for his anti-LGBTQ beliefs and his experiments involving gay conversion therapy. Miss Rowling denies that she chose the pseudonym because of Robert Gilbraith's personal beliefs, but it is pretty hard to deny the similarity in beliefs. Let's just say she is telling the truth for the moment. And she doesn't, and she didn't choose the name of Robert Gilbreth because of his personal beliefs. At the very least, it looks, does not look good when the pseudonym of an American psychologist who has very anti LGBTQ views and famous for his horrendous gay therapy expressions. You would think an intelligent individual would choose a pseudonym that is not tied to such horrific acts. I personally believe she chose his name because it matches her beliefs perfectly. Now let's look at the dangers of this book. With anti-trans laws on the rise being passed by state legislators, where violence against trans individuals is on the rise, this book can easily be used to further transphobic feelings in the general population. In the world right now, trans individuals are suffering from some of the highest levels of violence in recent years. Because of these transphobic policies and literature, every person has their famous book or books. One of the reasons why we all love certain books is that we can easily see ourselves as or relate to the protagonist in, in the story. In my opinion, what makes this book very dangerous is the people who see themselves as victims because of their transphobic beliefs and will relate to the protagonist in the, uh, let's see here, will see themselves in the story to the point where they might start to act violently against trans individuals. In conclusion, I want to express my fears about this book that Miss Rawlings has just produced. In my personal opinion, this book has too many similarities to the very famous work that was produced in 1925 called Mein Kampf. The main similarity is the protagonist is a victim of the pers uh, persecution from the others. Another similarity is the protagonist is justified in their hateful beliefs. The final similarity that's, is that someone with a highly unstable uh, mind will see themselves as the victim in this book and will act violently. In their unstable mind, they will see that they have suffered a great injustice has been done to them, and the only resolution is to use violence of the extreme measure.
If you agree with what I have written here, please tell everyone not to buy this book. Uh, the end. I think, I think at this point, her claiming that she didn't choose this name intentionally to me. That's kind of like how um she's saying like oh no I chose this, I didn't choose this name because of what it stands for like yes you did it it's there's no doubt in my mind that 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 she chose that for a purpose and it's all a part of her silly thought processes she did that intentionally well so, whether well like well my opinion is uh, whether you believe it or not I believe she is an intelligent woman and she didn't do this on accident. Because you could have chose any name. You could have chose any name in the book. And most intelligent people would probably do their due diligence and research to make sure that the name is not tied with something bad. Well, the thing that the thing that really, you know, sinks her ship on this is the fact that it's written by her. Everybody knows it's written by her. She could have just used J.K. Rowling's. She chose that that pseudonym for a reason. It, it's exactly what it is on its face. She's just a piece of shit, transphobic person who is trying again to pull the wool over some people's eyes. Some people who, for some reason, are still on the fence about her shittiness. But it's just like when she liked that um, all those Twitter posts of the transphobic stuff and, oh, I'm just standing up for women's rights. Like, she's just trying to hide the fact, make it basically put up a smoke screen that she's just a piece of shit. She's not a turf. Her. What's the word for it? Turf, a trans exclusionary radical feminist. Mm-hmm. Yep, she's a turf. Um, Nobody likes turfs. Not even turfs like turfs. Well, to put it in a simple term, she's just a bitch. Let's just call it what it is. As a bitch, I take offense to that. <laughs> yeah, Cynthia. Jeez. I'm a silly bitch, and I wouldn't even want to be labeled as like shit doesn't want to be labeled in the same category as J.K. Rowling. Fuck her. You know, as a kid, I wasn't allowed to read or watch Harry Potter. And then as an adult, when all this stuff with R- Rowling unfolded, I didn't care to. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't missing much. Now, what will we say to those that are going to say to me, uh, how can you say somebody's words are dangerous? It's just a book. <laughs> Have they never I... been the dictionary? I would say about Rowling specifically, she's a more generally friendly and inviting face of transphobia than some of the more overt and obvious forms of transphobia that we experience from, say, members of the Republican Party. Because uh-huh. she, um, she, she coats her transphobia in an air of feminism and an air of respectability. And that makes it seem more reasonable and worthwhile to people that might be on the fence on trans issues. So um, in one sense, that could be seen as particularly insidious. So what is transphobia from the WebMD? Transphobia describes someone who has hate, fear, disgust for transgender people or anyone who does not fit into the male-female gender binary. For example, a transphobic person may express disgust for a, quote, tomboy or for a masculine-appearing person wearing a dress. Another example would be J.K. Rowling. And another example would also be more of J.K. Rowling's work. (laughs) Well, personally, and like I said, this is just my opinion, I find it to be pure disgusting. Uh, she has a large base of people who are, you know, love her work on the Harry Potter series of books. And, you know, the books before it, the books during the Harry Potter series and now the new series. So she has quite a large following of people. 
But now when she starts writing uh, this other work that is not Harry Potter, that same base that is so enamored by what she has to say, in my opinion, a, um, a, good, a fair number of them are going to read this new book and start to pick up and saying, you know what? Um, I agree with her. She is right. She is justified in her transphobic fears. And that's what scares me. Well, when it becomes normalized, when that kind of language becomes normalized among our cultures, same we saw with Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais, when we have comedians using their platform to uh, denigrate an entire group of people and invalidate their existence, we'll see that it becomes normal for people to begin to say, well, you know what, maybe these people are right because their voices are being heard over actual human beings like us. Our voices are not being heard, whereas those that are against our existence are because they are using their platform for ill intent and it's and it's causing dangerous effects for our community well i'd like to also point out the very same things that are happening to trans individuals currently in the past couple years or you know going on right now mirror perfectly with what happened in germany in the late 30s mm-hmm Exactly. Well, that's exactly true, because in 1923, when Hitler attempted this coup against the country, he used Jewish people as uh, as a scapegoat for the reason of losing World War One. So the reason that in, in Hitler's eyes, why Germany lost World War One was because of democratic socialist Jewish people infiltrating the government and causing the decline of their strength. And so then he was sent to prison and he came back out. And because they glorified this man, they became comfortable with him just like people are comfortable with jk rowling in this language and i'm not equating at all by any means that jk rowling is, is hitler i'm just saying the parallels of, of language of being normalizing hatred like this is the same in, in nazi germany is exactly what they did they spoke ill of jewish people no one stood up for them and over time the hatred uh rose above anything else and it was easy for the government to to eradicate them because the people stood by and said well you know maybe they do have a have an idea maybe they are just a delusional thinking that you know they're who they say they are so it's a it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky slope i think that we're on and i don't think if we i think if we don't stand up and and, and stand against this that anything good will happen so it's it's our obligation as as people of marginalized groups to stand up for each other and ensure that that we're seen and heard well i think it goes back also to what i said before is um you're going to be quiet while other people are suffering, then you're just as bad as the shithead who's doing terrible shit. Like, let's be honest. You can't just sit by and twiddle your thumbs while people are suffering. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a challenge to um, get groups of people to stand up for the rights and freedoms for other groups, which they're not a part of. Even within the LGBT community itself, the trans community has historically been marginalized within the broader community. Um, a lot of uh, cis gay people, for example, have looked to, to the trans community and been like, oh no, we're the, we're the proper, good, civilized, normal gays. We're not like those trans people over there. So it's, it's definitely a challenge and you're all absolutely right that we have to, we have to have alliances with fellow marginalized people. There's no way around it. All, all nuclear is, is it's like a fundamental property of the universe. Um, 
It's, it's essentially, if you remember back in the day, the alchemists being like, we want to turn lead into gold. Mm -hmm. You can do that, but it takes a lot of energy and a, a lot of like sh shooting particles near the speed of light into each other to cause fusion. Well, when you go in the opposite direction of fusion, because all, fus all fusion is, is you're fusing elements together. The sun does it. Every star in the universe does it. It's basically goes from hydrogen to helium and then so forth, so forth, naturally all the way up to iron. Well, when you go in the reverse, when you split apart uh, molecule or atoms and make or let them kind of like... Uh, go to the basically the one that's after them or just take the the uh, energy that comes off of that, it produces a lot of heat. When you do what's called fission versus fusion. So fission is splitting it, fusion is combining it. So when you let it decay into its natural uh, form, or not natural, because it's always trying to go downhill to its uh, a base state, there's a lot of physics involved and it's hard to go through it without like sitting and explaining a lot of things. But basically just by its existence, it puts off a lot of uh, energy. It, as it decays, there's a lot of radioactive energy that's coming out. So what they do is they take some uh, distilled water, put it in a solution, drop some, some rods in it that are normally considered control rods to kind of control the, the reaction. And what happens is, is when you put these when you put this nuclear material in this water, what it does is it heats up and it produ produces steam. And that steam then goes and turns a turbine, which is a bunch of magnets on it. Um, and what that does is that produces a flow because uh, electromagnetic is basically a force in our universe. And they're the same side, uh, or they're two sides of the same coin. So once it starts to turn, what happens is it starts to generate electricity. That's how you get stuff like RF, just an oscillation between electricity. Um, but that's basically what they do. They just use a steam generator that's powered by uh, nuclear waste. Well, not nuclear waste, but nuclear components. And it is it is very clean compared to some, like in the sense of there's no air pollution. When you're burning uh, coal and stuff like that to do the exact same thing, it produces a lot of... Uh, of waste and if you actually look at the statistics of people who have died from low air quality it's much more mm, it's much more than it needs to be like there's a lot of people who've died from poor air quality including those who have asthma and this would completely eliminate that but to even top things off is germany actually figured out a way to do well, we think that they figured out a way to do um, fusion itself on a much colder level. It's that old term, cold fusion. It's really just fusion at room temperature instead of in the uh, belly of stars. But with the new stuff that they're doing, we might actually be finally like 30 to 40 years away from it. Unlike back in the 90s when they'd be like, in 10 years, we're going to have fusion. What exactly is, is fusion again? Is that is that similar to nuclear or... That's the same. Oh, that's what I was explaining in the beginning. Fusion is the com com uh, combination when you're combining uh, elements to produce their next state. It gives off energy. So if I take, so if you look at the sun, the sun is a big ball of hydrogen and helium. And what's happening is, is it's using gravity to combine. I think it's what is it? Two hydrogen to make four helium? I forget. I forget the exact number because you know I haven't had to look through that up in a while. But it takes like it takes two molecules of hydrogen converted into helium. Well, once it does that, it gives off a lot of energy. Um, that's why the sun is so you know 
it, it, it radiates so much heat and light because that's what it does. It gives off a lot of heat and light. So when it does that, it's fusing an element to create a new element. In this instance, it's not really new per se. We know what it is. It's just new in the sense that like that wasn't there before and it's here now. And that's what that's what the fusion thing does is it gives off a lot of energy and it's a lot safer. So regular nuclear uh, fission is very safe if you follow the protocols and stuff. Um, and it makes a lot of energy. But nuclear fusion is equally safe, if not more, and it gives off no waste. So that's the issue of why we've always been trying to solve it. It's just never been really possible at Earth temperatures. So what you're saying is that nuclear gives off waste and they use that waste to power energy, to create energy? No. Um. So nuclear, nuclear, uh, are you referring to nuclear fusion or nuclear fission? Nuclear fission. So I want to, I want to like separate, I want to understand the two separately because I'm still just trying to get a better picture of like where we're get, trying to go to what you're saying in like 40 years, that's fusion. So where yeah. we're at now. Fusion's waste is essentially just lower elements on the periodic table so if you were mm -hmm. to take hydrogen and it turn it to helium which we kind of need because we're running out of helium as well um you're just taking molecules of hydrogen which are very abundant and you're literally turning it into energy not like the idea of taking water separating the molecules with an electrical current and then burning off the hydrogen and oxygen that's a very bad idea and it's very you, you get a net energy loss so with nuclear fission, uh, nuclear not fusion, but fission, you take a radioactive chemical or radioactive element such as like plutonium, uranium, or I think they use cobalt these days. I forget what they use exactly these days. And that, while it's decaying, gives off a lot of energy. Like if you take, um, I think it's plutonium, and you put it in a room, a dark room with no light sources, it will literally glow. When you see this glow, it's really bad for you, and you are being radiated with non uh, with uh, ionizing radiation, which is very unhealthy for you. So that process alone gives off a lot of energy, and if you put it in with certain other metals, it'll cause reactions that will turn water or heat water, which will then produce steam, which will then turn turbines and generate energy or electricity. It does create nuclear waste that we do have to take uh, care to store. It's not a lot compared to coal. Like, it's insignificant compared to coal. But nuclear fission, uh, nuclear fusion, does not produce a waste that we cannot use. It doesn't produce radioactive waste. It produces waste that we can use in everyday stuff. It's actually much safer and much more uh, needed. What exactly is radioactive waste? Radioactive waste, it's like... Um, because you know that? we've seen those we've always seen those movies where they're like oh they turn into you know like extra we know the arms in the simpsons episodes and fail we yeah. need, need your radioactive waste is basically <laughs> it's once so the element is trying to get to its like ground state um if you put extra if i put extra electrons on say for instance oh, what is it hmm. carbon like carbon 14 so what happens is, is, is carbon-14 is 14 electrons more than it needs. It's normally made when somebody detonates a nuclear explosion. So there's no car carbon-14 on Earth naturally anymore. 
And what happens is, is every time you drop a nuke and create an explosion with it, carbon-14 is made. So that's carbon that has an extra set of electrons in its cloud. Well, over time, these electrons are passed off because it's trying to get to its ground state. You can imagine um, imagine uh, an, uh, a molecule or an, a nucleus of an atom as being... It, the ground state is when it's at the bottom floor. Well, each electron you put on it is an extra step. And whatever step that you stop off on, you're putting a slinky. Well, that slinky just, you know, falls over until it gets to its ground state where there's no more potential energy in it that you can get like a net positive off of. So that's all that it's doing is when you have radioactive material, which right now you have some in you, if you've eaten a banana, you've had radioactive material in you going outside, there's radiation. All the, all the uh, molecule is trying to do is get back to that ground state. So what happens is, is it starts to decay. And each time it decays, it gives off energy. And we can utilize that energy for stuff. For instance, carbon-14 decays, and we use the amount of carbon-14 on your body to date each of your organs. Like before, I'm sure you've heard the argument of sh the ship of thesis, where people are like, well, every molecule in your body is replaced every seven years. Due to carbon-14, we know that that's not the case. There are parts of your body that stay with you from when you are born to when you die. And that's basically nuclear physics in a very layman-esque terms uh in a nutshell it's not scary it's not gonna like kill all of us it it's actually very safe it's actually safer than many of the uh other forms of energy well i certainly enjoyed that little bit of science class that we had there now aria on the science like psychological side of things can you give us a little perspective on how to handle the misinformation that's going to come around this like there was a big push back in the 70s and 80s um among certain elements of the environmentalist movements that was back when um some of the high profile nuclear disasters were more recent and they had a big push to um get out negative in information about um nuclear power i mean there's not much we can do to um change a lot of people's minds other than just put out correct information and say like nuclear energy is far cleaner and safer than oil and gas and it's um, more consistent at producing the energy that we need than wind and solar is at the moment keep combating misinformation with correct information and that's about that's about all we can do i think i was uh thinking about the current state of the world and and how much is happening and you know as as us ladies that we do that we do this show and we we cover a lot of current events and it can get daunting for me at least and i'm trying to find balance in between you know being you know in engulfed in this in this news cycle and and staying up to date to be relevant and provide accurate information it can get um it can cause anguish and i've experienced a lot of that uh this past week and so i just want to get you know some of your some of your perspective on uh how you navigate life uh especially as a trans woman feeling like it doesn't matter because it's all just going to fall apart in a few years so why even put my best foot forward and it's just i mean i i put my best foot forward nonetheless but still i i don't assume it's all going to collapse i'm in i'm in a insufferable or incurable optimist like we could be heading for Mad Max or we could be heading for Star Trek. We, we can't predict the future. Or we could be doing both. Maybe we have to go through the Mad Max in order to become the Star Trek. 
Oh, Ooh. that's how it was in Star Trek. That's true. It was. We had to get we had to get through the nuclear war before we could get to the, the and, with replicators and the climate uh, collapse. Remember, because they were having a climate collapse, nuclear war, um, or nuclear fallout, all this stuff, and then they're like, "Yo, we're a bunch of fools. Yeah. Like, let's get our shit together." So I got my first monkeypox vaccine shot the other day, and I, I figured heard about I want to. Yeah, I wanted to get uh, ahead of the curve because I figure there's going to be supply chain issues in the not too distant future. There already um, is. Um, so it's part, um, from what I understand, it's part of a two shot regimen, kind of like how it was in the beginning of COVID. I got the first shot, which offers some protection. And what it is, it was, it's actually um, <clears throat> a version of the smallpox vaccine because monkeypox and smallpox are related. But vaccination against smallpox offers some protection against monkeypox. And um, we used to do smallpox vaccinations as just a regular course of a vaccine regimen for everybody in the country. But that was discontinued in, um, I believe, the 70s when um, smallpox was basically eradicated. So, mm. yeah. One of the crazy things right now is that people are saying, like, like, I literally saw some posts on it where people were like going back with that conspiracy theorist mindset because they said, oh, I thought monkeypox was an STD only the gays could get. Now that they're oh, seeing God. now that they're seeing that there are people who are contracting it without sexual intercourse, they're like, oh, I, I thought this was an STD. It is obviously the government messing with stuff. Hooey. Yeah. Like, no, it's never been an STD or an STI. It's literally... Just a viral infection that you can get from airborne transmission, touching. In some instances, if you swim in water, you can shed and it'll transmit that way after someone else has jumped in the water that you've just jumped into. Very viral. And we collectively have a very, very short memory because this is the same kind of mental process a lot of people had for HIV. Mm -hmm. HIV obviously was not limited to the, the queer community, but that's the way it was presented by certain media outlets. And we're kind of seeing the same thing with monkeypox because unfortunately monkeypox is, um, the, this wave of monkeypox is primarily affecting the LGBT community. So right-wing media is having a field day with it, making it out to be an STD that's specifically a problem for the queer community when that's not the case. Oh, yeah, I've even been asked like, oh, do you plan on getting vaccinated for it? And I was like, well, I plan to, are you considering it? And like, oh, I'm not gay. And like, yes, what? that's obviously how this works. Like, the mm -hmm. virus is gonna come up to you and be like, smell straight to me and look at the way they dance and look at the way they dress yeah that's just crazy on how people think that way and then it's even funnier when they get it mm -hmm. that's propaganda being pushed anything to further uh alienate the general public from the the queer community is what the the right wing is going to use it for and it's convenient to do so because it is affecting our community at a disproportionate level, unfortunately. Let's look at the system we are in. Uh, we, the taxpayers, are the ones who fund a lot of the research and development in the medical field for new drugs. Yeah. And uh, here's the thing, though. Why aren't we? You know, if I don't know about you, but if I'm help funding Project X and it comes to a positive fruition, where's my cut?
Why are yeah. we not getting anything? Yeah, if you think about it, your tax dollars go to fund these these corporations and companies. Like they they get their money through the government, government grants and research, and that's how a lot of them do a bunch of their development. And this should be like a GoFundMe thing. Like, why is it that this corporation will come along and, oh yeah, we got all these grants, we did all this stuff, and this pill has come to fruition. Now we're going to take it, and it's going to be given to a company that will patent it and then make billions off of it at your expense. Mm -hmm. Like, exactly. there should be more regulation on some of this stuff. Like, if you go to places like Japan and you go to get, say, insulin, or you go to, say, get, um, I don't know, uh, an MRI, like, that stuff is dirt cheap over there. Like, I got a, over here in the States, I needed to get an ultrasound. That cost me $150 with insurance. Japan, it's $14. Wow. No wonder you want to move to Japan. I want to get out of here. Huh? I'm, every other country has a better healthcare system than us. Uh, uh, every developed country has a better healthcare system hmm. than us. But going I mean, back like to, yeah, but getting back to my point about, you know, the topic we're talking about, think about this for a moment. You're a scientist or, you know, someone or someone who's in R&D. What's your motivation for trying to come up with some new drug? Think about that for a moment. I mean, if you're, is your name going to be attached to the uh, findings? Possibly. But for the most part, it's by company X. That's capitalism. That's why I like the idea behind the, I can't remember which vaccine it was. I think it's the polio vaccine. Like, that guy didn't he didn't care for the for you know renown. He just wanted to make the world a better place. And I think if more people could just be able have the money and funds to not have to worry about like where they're gonna eat tomorrow, we'd have more people like that who'd be like, Hey, like this system has helped me be able to survive and I'd like more people to be in this system of survival. Let's work together to make this place more livable. I think if we didn't have some of the systems we have today that you have more people willing to do that. Cause I, I hate, you hear it a lot where people are like, Oh, if you didn't have to work, you wouldn't do anything productive. And it's like, well, how are you valuing my productivity? Like, are you assuming that art is worthless? Because a lot of people would do art and it would be fucking amazing. Now, does anybody know in 1923, what happened with Hitler and his minions, the uprising and that little coup that he had, does anybody know about that? I do. Cynthia, can you? It was an attempted coup uh, where he tried to overthrow the government and he failed and then was sent to prison. And that's when he wrote probably one of the most despicable pieces of work. Yep, Mein Kampf. Wow. That's been used by uh, yeah, every right wing group uh, you can imagine. Now, I mean, why, what, what was, now, now see, now the reason I bring that up is because the rhetoric behind what Hitler was saying in 1923, the reason why they had to have the coup was because it was, he, as he said, it was the socialist Democrats or, and, you know, uh, Jewish people that were, they infiltrated the military during World War One, and they led to the, they led to Germany losing in World War One, And so Hitler went on the attack saying it's the socialist Democrats that are, that they infiltrated our, our government and their, and their territory 
tearing us down. They're making us weaker. That's why we lost World War One. That's why we need to take this government back and make sure that we are stronger and make Germany great again. Now, I just think that what I explained there is a literal parallel to what we're hearing today in 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 our country, in this country today, with 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 MAGA Republicans and, and Trump and 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 the election being stolen. I mean <laughs> It's only been a year and a half from the 2020 election, and they've made it seem like it's like some major event that's a part of American history in a way that I can't even imagine. Like it's, they've Are taken you surprised it. Surprised that they gravitated to that, especially with the fact that of American exceptionalism. Like yeah, many many of the talking points have even remained the same. There was um, a talking point that the Nazi Party was um, well known for using about what they called Jewish Bolshevism. So they believed that the Marxist movements, communist movements, those were Jewish plots to undermine the German people. And that talking point still exists in right-wing circles here in the United States. They don't call it Jewish Bolshevism. They more commonly call it, um, um, what is it? Global, it? global, global elitism? Well, uh, yeah, globalism is a common term or um, postmodern neo-Marxism. So it's the same talking point, slightly different package that's still used by the far right today. Well, now, Lucy, the reason that I'll answer that, why am I am I surprised? I, I am I am surprised because I didn't realize up until the last few months how much I had benefited from the systems in play here in this country. How much a white man can can benefit from from this system? To where last year I was offered, you know, high paying jobs. Same, actually, the same franchise offered me like seventeen dollars to work at Chipotle. Same franchise this year, fourteen fifty less than they advertise on the on the promotionals. And it it and and so I did. I I did. I thought, you know, in the last few years that I I was like, oh yeah, I'm I'm, I'm awaking to how much I'm privileged. Right, right. But like, it wasn't until that I got like smacked in the face with discrimination that I'm like, whoa. Well, I think I think that's because it goes back to the emotional intelligence thing too. Like many people aren't looking outside of their bubble and seeing that like their neighbor might not have it as well because that, that person might not be their neighbor. Like for me, I've seen racism in America since like I've been capable of remembering things. Like for a lot of white people, if, for instance, when, when a transgender woman comes out to me who is white, I will have to explain, you're a minority now. You're going to get shit and hate for literally no fucking reason. And to many of them, they don't understand because they've never been a minority in America. And it's very apparent when you live it daily that like, oh shit, like America is kind of shitty to people who aren't the majority or that it wasn't built and made for because a lot of the stuff is just inherent to its existence. Like earlier we were talking about how this came around since 1930s but really this othering thing has been around since the founding of the country benjamin franklin hated the fucking germans and said that they were going to turn all of america speaking german uh german instead of english and we saw that that didn't happen then the next group who came it happened to them uh white people have even been doing it to other white people that they didn't claim were white like for a while irish people were considered lesser white folk happened to them the germans so forth like this is ingrained in america this country is racist as fuck and always has been we saw like i mean it was literally built on the backs of black folk and fucking native americans like this country has never been for those of us who are the minority there's um you know there there's a phenomenon i lucy correct me if i'm wrong dunning kruger effect right oh yeah Yes, that's the actually of... a legitimate term, and that's yeah. used in many scientific fields. 
Um, yeah, so the Dunning-Kruger effect um, is when, you know, determined by how much knowledge you have is going to have a correlation to how confident you are about something. So somebody has a very, has like a surface level knowledge of something, but they feel very, very equipped to have very strong opinions on the subject. Like you just got out of a philosophy 101 class. Oh, now I know everything there is to know about philosophy. But you climb up that bell curve, you learn even more and even more and even more and you discover how little you actually knew in the first place. So your confidence about your knowledge of it goes down. So you got a couple more philosophy classes under your belts. Now you become far less confident. It's like, oh shit, I, I really didn't know shit one, two, three years ago with that first class. Oh and God. I think uh, I think that goes along a little bit with what you're saying about GMOs. People grow more skeptical about GMOs, even if they have more knowledge about it. And I want to bring in a little bit of hashtag fair and balanced for a second. There are legitimate concerns to be had about GMOs and the use of GMO technologies. One thing that I'm aware of is that um, there's concern among some people that study GMOs that it's reducing plants biodiversity because um, companies like Monsanto will have one particular strain of, of of a particularly genetically modified food. And because they have one strain and not like several different strains, they're more susceptible to disease. That is a very real concern. And that is something that is definitely worth talking about. And when it comes to deciding are GMOs good, are GMOs bad, the real answer is it's complicated. That's and true. You're, yeah. Well, like look at bananas, for instance. So I don't know if y'all have researched uh, the Cavendish banana and how it went extinct because of, you know, most bananas in this instance are genetically identical. Their bio, their, their diversity in at their genetic level, it was so similar that one specific type of uh, plague came through and wiped the, all this particular banana out. And for a long time, people were worried, like, what are we going to do to replace this? And sure, we came up with a solution in time. Uh, and we did. There's, you still have bananas that you eat at your tables to this day because we found an alternative. But that is a very strong concern because if we do lower the biodiversity of stuff, we don't want it to be like the Tasmanian devil where one thing can come through and wipe that out as well. But at the same time, what you'll what you'll get as a pushback is you have people who will say, well, well, we can genetically modify that same crop to protect against that other uh, plague that'll be coming through and wiping it out. But there's an issue with that because you can't there then go in and remodify again without the legalities issue. So you'll run into an instance where you've modified it again, or somebody could go and uh, patent that gene that would protect your crop. So now you have to go to that person and that then would create another monopoly in and of itself. Now that doesn't necessarily could be the case. There could be multiple ways to protect against uh, a pathogen other than just one specific instance. Like we saw with COVID, there were several different types of uh, vaccinations that you could use. However, the possibility would still be there. Uh, so Lucy, I'm, I want to ask you a question because you might know more about this than I do. You meant you brought up gene patenting, and I know that's the thing with a lot of these different companies that do genetic modification of foods. Yeah. I when I hear when I think about gene patenting, I think of Jonas Salk and his developments of the polio vaccine. Jonas Salk specifically did not want the polio vaccine to be patented because he wanted it to be as widely available as it possibly could. 
Yes. Do you think having some kind of system where we move away from patenting these certain things will one take power away from large corporations like Monsanto to make bad decisions over genetic modification of foods, and also have have GMOs be a better, safer alternative? Yeah, so to me, I think that it shouldn't be allowed. I don't think that you should be allowed to patent a gene because what's to say that in the future through sexual uh, selection that you won't get that same gene. So I know currently it is, if you get it through uh, more of a, a few generations of manipulation via current technology, then yes, it is illegal. But how would you prove that? Like, how would they know that I haven't, you know, like some pharma, farmer in some random location hasn't been growing these things until bam, one of them has it and then sexually selected for that trait. So right mm -hmm. now, I, I do think like on a personal level, I don't think it's a good idea to be able to patent a gene per se. I know that in instances of people, we can't patent genes of people, but you can of plants and animals. And I don't like the fact that you can do that. I think that that should just, I think that that's outright unethical because some of these patents could be saving lives. Like with golden rice, golden rice, can make it to where the nutrients that are being uptook by the, the organism, in this instance, rice, will produce more vitamin A. And a leading cause in developing nations of blindness is from malnutrition and the inability to get enough vitamin A. Uh, so the fact that we can patent that and be like, hey, if you want this rice, you have to pay this corporation, I think is just unethical. Um, and I know in the future, maybe we'll find ways to pirate that. And if they do, I am all for that. Like if they get a 3D printer and they're like, hey, I just, I have an organic 3D printer. There's some neuromorphic circuits in here. I've implanted the genes in it. Go plant this rice. I, I'm gonna tell you right now, I, it's just like those old commercials in the, in the past. And they're like, you wouldn't download a car. Motherfucker, if I could download a car, I would. Well, have you heard of the Dairy Council from 1995? The 1995 Dairy Council that was created by the government. It was a subsidized organization that had to uh, reallocate all of the, the milk and cheese that was left over from all the skim milk that was produced in the 80s and 90s. And they had to redistribute all of that excess cheese out. And so they marketed with uh, fast food organizations and food companies and schools all along to begin uh, promoting liquid nacho cheese and, and, and all of these cheese products. And so you saw in the 90s, there was a heavy push for cheese yeah. items into the 2000s. I mean, gosh, look at Taco Bell and, and, and Wendy's and Burger King, the Baconator, the cheese and all of that stuff is, is so prevalent. And that was a push by the government. And yeah, it's a propaganda campaign, basically. So, so I want to ask, I want to, I want to, so what we're seeing is we're seeing a push really, if if you really look into it, you're seeing a push by the government to continue profiting off of these toxic foods, yet like that's not in the well-being of, of, of humanity. I mean, the government now has established that a pizza has enough tomato sauce, tomato in it, that it is a vegetable. So what, at, and so I guess now we'll go over to Lucy and ask, what are we going to do in regards to our government literally failing us 100%. They're literally not listening and they're poisoning us and they're not doing anything. What are we going to do? Well, for me, I like to take action, protest and vote. Um, I think a lot of Americans are of this 
belief that, oh, it's just one vote. It's not going to do anything. And to me, that's foolish and silly, because if you get enough Americans who get out and vote for stuff that's going to change things, write your senators, your congressmen, and be like, hey, asshole, this is something that I'm actually paying attention to. And if you don't get off your butt and do something, I might vote for somebody who will. And a good example of this actually working would be like AOC. Um, it was believed that she wasn't going to be able to get in office solely because she was a poor person who just didn't have the connections, and she did because people responded with her message. So for me, I take my own actions, even though I know that I'm not going to be able to make a big enough of a footprint to care, but uh, for, to make a difference, but I still care. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you should feel guilty for not uh, caring. It's just that you should feel guilty for not taking a stance and fucking doing something about it. And that's why I look at who's actually on the ballot start helping to campaign and stuff like that you need to be active in what you plan to do you can't just sit back and wait for somebody to take care of issues like this because once this issue becomes too much of a problem to to ignore that's when it's going to steamroll you one of the things i don't think some of these people pay attention to is the hypotheticals for instance if the climate continues to change and we continue to see this increase in uh sea, sea temperatures and it's acidity for their salinic uh, water. For instance, you're not going to have the food chain you're going to have because in certain aspects, snails will no longer be able to make their shells in the ocean, which we're currently seeing. But on top of that, you're going to have certain instances of more powerful storms. For one example, the hypercane. Now, when that comes through, I think that's finally when people are going to give a damn because at that point, the temperatures will be able to sustain uh, storms that are so powerful that they stay. It'll basically be like the eye of Jupiter roaming around the planet. I'm more than willing to be like, hmm, I told you, motherfucker, so. But so will so many other climate scientists. The science is clear. The, 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 the planet is rapidly changing, and we are on the verge of not being able to live on this planet for it will be uninhabitable due to our own behavior. And we are on the verge of extinction. I mean, how many uh, species have already gone extinct on this planet because of, of, this, of this climate crisis that we're in? Oh yeah, there's one a certain of, term for that, for the current yeah. extinction of caused by humans. And what is it? We're, and there's five or six mass extinction events. Yeah, and we're currently in another one. Yeah, I think we're, it's called... we're, we're currently in one. Yeah. It's called the Apocene. I think so. And climate change should be a priority for any any voters and any politicians. If if there's a politician out there that's not making uh, climate change one of their top priorities, if not their top priority, they should not be getting your vote. And I want to take an opportunity to stress the importance of. Uh, voting in local elections mm -hmm. because the, these are big macro issues and when we're talking about big macro issues it can be a little bit difficult to conceptualize the solutions because the solutions are going to be so big and complicated it's a lot more simple to focus on your city and find these particular businesses that are polluting in your city and do something about it that way one of the biggest problems, I think, is um, the problem of uh, economic incentives, because it's the way it's set up now, it's far, far cheaper for these businesses to pay whatever fine they need to pay for polluting, as opposed to 
making fundamental changes to their infrastructure that's causing the polluting in the first place, and that has to be changed. America is not really a democracy in the sense because, that people yeah. think it's it's a representative democracy. You vote for somebody who you feel is going to represent you, and in this instance, not a lot of people are going to represent you. See, that's why you need to run for office. That way, you could be a represent representation of like the people who see themselves in you and whatnot. But you participate in democracy in a way that you feel uh, is going to get you the best results or in a way that you feel reflects on you uh, and your end goals. This is Athena Pramakis. Remember that staying informed and connected is important whether you're transitioning yourself or just want to be an ally. So if you'd like to get in contact with us about having a conversation, you can reach us at 916-572-9439 or by emailing transatlanticpodcasting at gmail.com. And thank you for listening to this episode of Transatlantic Conversations and for listening over this season. And a special thanks to the guests we've had over the months. Drive performer Delalicious, also known as Brandon Putnam, Kenya Acid, Olivia Chappell, Julie McDonald, Alicia Flores, Brandy Evans, Carol Ann Hinsworth, Ashley Lind, Jay Lewis, Ben Landingham, Tori Williams, Azira Fisher, Austin Guess, Savannah Barker, Stygian Blue, Brandy Sewell, Brooke Earhart, Atto Suzuki, Mia Kaminsky, Rory Phoenix Monroe, Drag King Performer, Mr. Gay Indiana 2022, IJ Vinesse, Marina Bosquet. Thanks again for listening to the 30th episode of the Transatlantic Conversations podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye.